Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics, a federal promise of new numbers on Alberta's share of the Canada Pension Plan. I told ministers today that I would ask the chief actuary to provide an estimate of the asset transfer. We'll have reaction from that province's finance minister, Nate Horner. This morning, we talked about a lot of different issues. That one didn't come up. The PM in DC today, talking with Joe Biden about the Middle East, but not about the cross-border tension over digital taxes. More on that with the head of the Future Borders Coalition, Laura Dawson. And another week of jockeying on Parliament Hill over carbon pricing. Our Friday journalist panel is here with their analysis. This is Primetime Politics. Hello, I'm Andrew Thompson in for Michael Serapio tonight. The federal government says Canada's chief actuary will report back on the Canada Pension Plan, estimating how much Alberta could take away if it leaves the CPP. Finance Minister Krista Freeland also says Alberta would need to hammer out some complex pension agreements with the rest of the country and with foreign governments. Here she is after today's virtual meeting with provincial and territorial finance ministers. This conversation is all about the well-being and the financial security of all Canadians. Since the CPP was founded nearly 60 years ago, no province has ever left. This action is unprecedented. It would be very complicated. And it would come at a time of great uncertainty and complexity. Protecting the pensions of every single Canadian is a priority for our government. We will always stand up for the Canada Pension Plan and for the secure and dignified retirement it provides to all Canadians. A point I made clear in today's meeting. Well, let's hear now from the Alberta Finance Minister, Nate Horner. Minister Horner, thanks for making time for us. Yeah, no problem. Good to be with you, Andrew. So we have the federal uh, finance minister, Krista Freeland, coming out of this meeting saying she wants the chief actuary to analyze uh, the CPP asset transfers and estimate the numbers based on what she's calling a reasonable interpretation of the law. Now, you and Premier Daniel Smith have said you want a hard number from the federal government. Does this meet your demand? Well, we're, we're pleased that uh, the federal government has agreed to involve the chief actuary and we look uh, you know, forward to, to hearing what they come up with and seeing their analysis. You know, that's, that's been part of the frustration to this point. Um, they've uh, uh, criticized the, the LifeWorks, formerly Morneau Chappelle report that the Alberta government commissioned, uh, but haven't gave us anything substantial. So we're, yeah, I think we're pleased that, um, that they've agreed to that now. And so we look forward to seeing what the chief actuary uh, thinks and comes up with. Now that LifeWorks report, of course, had 
given the $334 billion figure, about 53% of current uh, CPP assets. And as you know, there have been arguments that the number should actually be closer to 15 or 16%. So uh, today, is $334 billion still your government's uh, working number on this? Well, it's the report's number. We, we commissioned the report. I'm not an actuary or a lawyer. I actually had to correct Minister Freeland in our meeting today. She was saying that this was our formula. I had to correct her. No, it's very much theirs. It's in the CPP Act. Um, you know, there's been a withdrawal formula since inception in 1966. It was updated in 1997 when the plan changed from a pay-as-you-go plan to a modified pay-as-you-go plan. And then actually um, this Liberal government um, changed it again and then in 2017. Uh, when they added the the additional benefits. So uh, Ms. Freeland is also saying that if you were to leave the CPP, that you'd be having to uh, negotiate some complex uh, and time-consuming agreements uh, with the CPP, with the Quebec Pension Plan, and as well uh, with foreign governments. So what's your answer to that argument that you're getting from the federal government on this? Well, I, I would ask them, do they don't, they don't think Alberta's capable of that? Um, there's 39 agreements with the QPP. There's 60 with the Canadian Pension Plan. I don't see that as a, a barrier in any way. It's work that would need to be done, but, you know, we would have to pursue for full portability, just like the QPP. So I, I don't see that as a barrier. Okay, and you mentioned uh, some of the exchanges you had with Christopher Freeland. So uh, I guess I want to ask you more about the tone today, because this meeting... Uh, of course, is a direct response to a, a potential Alberta pension plan. It was the Ontario Finance Minister who pushed for these talks? So, as you as you were on this call today, was it essentially thirteen against one on this call? No, I don't. I don't think so. You know, I'd say uh, I fully intended to hear everyone out. You know, there was a lot of we would sure like Alberta to stay, and I think that's to be expected for sure. Uh, but there was also, you know, a real acknowledgement of, uh, you know, other other frustrations. I'd say primarily the carbon tax um, that had to be brought up by over half of the finance ministers in the meeting, uh, but definitely a refusal to discuss it in any way. Um, okay, Minister so, what, so what, was, what was the message you heard from from the finance minister? She did get asked about this in her news conference. So, uh, when these changes to carbon pricing were were brought up today. Uh, what did you hear back? Well, she, she was clear that this was a special meeting and that couldn't be discussed. Um, so I asked uh, I asked the minister from Ontario, I said, well, seeing as you get such a quick response, would you mind sending her a letter on the carbon tax and maybe we could have one next week? Uh, but uh, I think we'll, we'll look forward to discussing this uh, hopefully soon. We made it clear that it is the most urgent issue across the country, especially coming into winter. Um, but yeah, definitely fell on deaf ears today. Okay, now just, just going back to the pension discussion then, your government has tabled its bill on the referendum process uh, for leaving the Canada Pension Plan and what that would look like. The bill does not say, however, that the referendum result would have to be binding on the government. Why not? Uh, it doesn't get into the referendum process at all. It just refers back to the Referendum Act. Uh, it says it says basically four things that if Alberta was to uh, pursue this, that it would require a referendum. It doesn't get into any referendum details that would 
be up to the government of the day. It says that the benefits would have to be the same or better. The contribution rate would have to be the same or lower. And it makes clear that any asset transfer could only be used for an Alberta pension plan. Okay, final question uh, then for you, uh, Minister. I did speak with Premier Smith on the program earlier this week, and uh, she said, look, we're not sure yet if Albertans have an appetite for this. So uh, when it comes to a referendum, what is the uh, specific detailed level of public support that you would need to say, yes, we are going to move ahead with a referendum on a pension plan? Well, it would have to be clear to us that there was support for it. So, you know, we have an engagement panel um, out right now led by former minister Jim Denning. Um, we're expecting a what, what have we heard uh, document from him. There's over 70,000 submissions on the, on the website. So, you know, there'll be, there'll be lots of, of, uh, of data to mull over, but no one wants to proceed without the support of Albertans and the premier's made clear we wouldn't proceed without, you know, clarity on the numbers either. So. Okay, Alberta Finance Minister uh, Nate Horner, thanks for your time on this. Thank you very much. All right, well, let's talk more now about pensions and about carbon pricing with our Friday Journalist panel. And we do have three Ottawa Bureau Chiefs joining us today. Bob Fife of The Globe and Mail, Tonda McCharles of The Toronto Star, and Joanna Smith of the Canadian Press. Welcome to all three of you. Thanks uh, for having us. Tonda, let me start with you and what we heard today from the Finance Minister, Krista Freeland, after her meeting with her uh, provincial and territorial counterparts on Alberta's uh, potential exit from the Canada Pension right. Plan and how the numbers uh, might add up. What stands out for well, you we did what, what stood out for me was that we actually didn't get anything substantive on this debate, but still at least, you know, they met, they talked. Uh, on this one, Alberta might be on its own. It, there aren't a lot of other premiers that are taking its side in that it's making the argument that it deserves to get out with 53% of the massive Canada Pension Fund. But fundamentally, this argument will all come down to what Ottawa finally calculates as what Alberta would be entitled to and how ridiculous it would be for the entire pension fund. This is a solid, solid fund that has done really well for Canadians, and then the politics will unfold from there. So, Joanna, I guess it really is just a case now of waiting for these numbers and possibly competing numbers. And we have heard Alberta Premier Daniel Smith uh, float the idea that this could end up in court. What are you going to be watching for now that this meeting's happened? Well, first of all, we also heard her kind of unfloat the idea of holding a referendum, right? Like that, that sort of seems in doubt a little bit more. It wouldn't come until after consultations maybe. So I think she's given herself a different kind of exit strategy there perhaps. But it really is also a case of follow the money. Um, you can talk about provinces wanting more independence, wanting more fair share, but if it means the rest of the provinces will be left with less than half of what's there, they're not gonna be okay with that. Okay, Bob, I wanna to turn to carbon pricing. We know that finance ministers did wanna ask Krista Freeland about that today in those talks, and it really caps off a week where we have seen the Trudeau government uh, really under attack. Uh, from not just from opposition parties, but from conservative premiers, from NDP, and liberals. provincial parties, and uh, from, from liberals as well. I do want to talk about that side of it as well, but um, what are your uh, impressions of how you've seen this political debate unfolding this week uh, since that announcement, which occurred one Well, week you ago? know, what it shows is that the government is in panic mode. Uh, it's actually an indication that, uh, that you've got a tired government that hasn't thought through uh, the implications of what they did with this carbon uh, reversal. Uh, when you are seeing um, 
you know, they've caved to a, a very important voting block in Atlantic Canada, but it's had repercussions all across the country. And everybody's saying, well, what about me? Well, how come I can't get this for natural gas? Or how come I'm not entitled to a heat pump? Uh, and you have the uh, Western premiers in particular saying, uh, you know, this is a real indication here that this government uh, it does not uh, govern in the interests of the country as a whole, but is using it, uh, it's, it's, it's plain politics for electoral reasons here. And then you're, you're seeing a very important members of the Liberal Party, including Catherine McKenna, who is the first uh, environment minister, uh, and one who's highly respected in the Liberal Party and amongst environmentalists, saying that, you know, you've got to reverse this move. This is really bad when you're taking the carbon tax off of uh, home heating oil, which is the biggest polluter there is. And you have a potential leadership candidate such as Mark Carney saying, hey, this right. isn't going very well. So this is not being a great week for the Liberals, and this, this is not going to get better for them. They've miscalculated, it's blowing up on their face, and I don't see how they're going to get out of it. Tonda, what do you think? Because we have heard the government out defending this mm -hmm. proposal this week, uh, talking about affordability, talking about moving mm -hmm. people from uh, heating oil, getting heat pumps installed, uh, and the Prime Minister as well, notably saying, look, there's not going to be any more carve-outs, mm -hmm. there's not going to be any more pauses. We did hear uh, Krista Freeland say that again in her uh, news conference. What do you think about how uh, the government has been trying to push back against all this criticism? I think that they have a fundamental problem because there is a... Um incoherence on a number of levels in their rollout of it and their decision to go this route. It, they conflated their environmental policy and their challenge on cost of living and affordability issues. And so they tried to somehow marry the two and near the twain shall meet because that was their platform to campaign on carbon pricing. And now that they've allowed a little wedge in there, of course their critics are coming after them. The other incoherence in it is that if it was, and it is actually, um, uh, an offer on, you know, the delayed tax on home heating oil and the help for um, the on the re, uh, on the heat pumps, establishing heat pumps. These are on offer to all of Canada, and mm -hmm. you know the benefit for the uh, increased rebate for rural residents is available to all rural residents who have uh, have who are in this category. But the problem is, they stood up a bunch of Atlantic Canadian MPs behind them, not rural MPs, mind you. They don't have a whole lot outside of Atlantic Canada. But I think that. You know, if the political marketing brains uh, over at the PMO had thought this through, they would have seen those incoherences. Tactically, it's a problem. It's not just a comms problem. It's also electorally, in a couple of years' time, when people come back to go to the polls, now Atlantic Canada knows exactly how hard they're going to get hit. And so it's essentially a vote for, you know, liberals will have to campaign on vote for me, and you, you definitely will get hit in a year. Uh, so I think that that incoherence and doesn't leave them much space now to defend it as a policy. They're, they're, they're struggling to defend it, and they're meeting all the critics that uh, Bob has pointed out. And, and the bigger challenge, I think, now is that if they try to address the concerns that have been raised, they risk losing some of their own people inside. Stephen Guibault has said this week that there will be no more carve-outs as long as I'm environment minister. So will he quit if they try to address some of these concerns? That's a big, that's a big question. Uh, Joanna, what do you think about the, the politics of this? Because uh, we're talking about kind of the internal situation within the Liberal Party, but we've also got uh, this conservative motion mm -hmm. calling for an exemption on all home heating yeah. uh, from, from, from carbon pricing. Of course, the bloc saying, look, this, this motion doesn't apply to Quebec. We have our own plans. So uh, 
you know, we we're not NDP concerned about it, but out. but of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. we have the NDP right coming out saying <laughs> the NDP yeah. yesterday saying uh, notably that they're going to be in line with the Conservatives on this, which you wouldn't necessarily expect on a on an environmental issue. But mm. what's the significance here of of the new new Democrats who have that agreement with the Liberals saying, look, we are going to be voting with them on this carbon pricing issue. I think it's significant and it's a it's a shifting of perception of alliances in the House, not in any substantial way, to be clear. Like I do not I do not believe for a second that that agreement is in doubt at this point. I think it benefits both the Liberals and the NDP to head off an election that the Liberals would likely lose and the NDP is unlikely to win. Um, but to have Peter Julian come out and say that it's only to be the adult in the room, that Conservative leader Pierre Polyev had put to forward a reasonable motion, um, NDP having characterized earlier ones as unreasonable. Um, it's, it's, it's allowing the NDP's greatest dance partner in the House of Commons to essentially come out and chastise the Liberals for playing too hard with politics in a, in a messy and incoherent way and make Polyev look like a statesman, right? So. And speaking of Pierre Polyev, Bob, um, you know, he's obviously been targeting specific Liberal MPs on social media and, and NDP MPs as well, <laughs> and NDP MPs, especially in Northern Ontario, places yeah. like uh, Sudbury, North Bay, uh, Thunder Bay, and now we've also got. Uh, you talked about the pressure from from Western premiers, Ontario Premier Doug Ford, telling Ontario Liberal MPs, "Look, look at what your Atlanta colleagues have done for their residents. Are you going to do the same?" So, uh, the Liberal Caucus really under pressure here from a number of fronts. Well, look, I mean that's the problem with this policy. They've opened the door. And now everybody's saying, well, what about me? Um, because in, Atlanta, in Western Canada, they don't have a lot of home heating oil. They do in Northern Ontario, but not in, uh, not in, uh, in, in Western Canada because it's mainly natural gas. So people are, or in the major cities, it's natural gas. And people are going to be saying, look, you've, you've, you, this the most, uh, the most polluting oil, uh, greenhouse gas emission is, is home heating oil. And you've given Atlantic Canadians a break for very electoral reasons. What about me? I don't see a way out for the, the government out of this. I it, just don't see a way that they can get out of this. It now. would be interesting to know to what extent they had discussions inside when they were trying to figure out how do you balance the, the affordability concern uh, with the environmental um, policy that's their plank, carbon pricing, uh, how they balance, why, would, why not increase the rebates, uh, uh, simply increase the carbon levy rebate for the people who consume home heating oil, and then it's an affordability measure. Did they, were they concerned that was going to be too inflationary, pumping more money into the economy than at a time it shouldn't? But they did that with the so-called grocery rebate, which was really a GST credit increase for low-income households. Why didn't they help households they felt were hit on the affordability issue in that way, as opposed to starting to chip away at their centerpiece environmental plank. Uh, that is still a mystery, and I'd love to know yeah, sort I mean, of that discussion. Yeah, I mean, has to be universal. It has to be across the country. You can't be, if, you're going to, if it's going to be serious, you can't start doing carve-outs, and that's the problem they have, and that's why they're running into pretty serious problems with the environmentalists in this movement, but also a lot of people in the Liberal Party who actually believe in this, and this is going. This is there's no win for this government on this. I mean, to uh, to Honda point, how wh what was their thinking in the prime minister's office that they came up with this idea? 
Okay, we have a moment left, Joanna. I want to uh, bring you in and close with you because uh, the Toronto Star does have some new polling numbers uh, from Abacus Data. The Conservatives still in a lead nationally and with Pierre Polyev personally ahead of uh, Justin Trudeau on economic policy and foreign policy. So it does go back to that uh, affordability versus environment question, especially because we are awaiting that fall fiscal update. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's clearly... People want to change, you know. Um, the Liberals look like they're in chaos. I think zooming out a little bit, if you think about where this government is in its life cycle, could have had a choice to dig in on these longer-term things that, you know, short-term pain, longer-term gain, mm-hmm. which is a, what a carbon pricing program is. Um, but to me, this backsliding makes it look like they still think they have a chance and they're trying to save the furniture, and it's uh, it's looking really bad. I, w- I would just point, we actually have more data to roll out this weekend from that mm-hmm. poll. That's super interesting, and I urge everyone to read it because actually it it, it speaks to the fact that there, they might be at a tipping point. There, there may not be a comeback path for the Liberals, not just under uh, Justin Trudeau. Even if he were to leave, they now have big problems. So I'd encourage people to take a peek at that because it's very telling. All right, Tonda, Joanna, and Bob, thanks Thank as you. always. Thank you. The Prime Minister says he and U.S. President Joe Biden share concerns about civilian lives in Gaza, but that both remain committed to Israel's right to self-defense. The pair meeting ahead of a Washington summit with North and South American leaders. One item not on the agenda, according to Justin Trudeau, American resistance to Canada's looming digital services tax. Trudeau asked about U.S. warnings of a big fight over the measure. We're a government that believes that everyone should pay their fair share of taxes. We are hopeful that there will be uh, a uh, common framework uh, eventually sometime in the future. But we've been very, very clear about our responsibility to Canadians, uh, particularly for services delivered to Canadians on Canadian soil. Well, let's bring in Laura Dawson, Executive Director of the Future Borders Coalition and always a shrewd observer of the cross-border relationship. She's in Atlanta tonight. Laura, good to have you on. Nice to be here. Thank you. So we heard the Prime Minister today say that uh, this looming digital services tax was not part of his discussions with President Biden. Of course, the U.S. wants it delayed until there's a global framework. We've had the ambassador here in Ottawa warning of a big fight. Uh, What do you make of the fact that this didn't actually come up in today's discussions? Well, I'm not surprised that it didn't come up in the discussions, which is a multi-country conversation focused primarily on Latin America and America's issues. Uh, You know that the prime minister and the president have a lot going on, a lot on their plates, uh, and in particular, uh, the issues in the Middle East and, and other flashpoints around the world. So I'm not surprised that digital services tax as a bilateral issue didn't come up between the two leaders. Um, There's a lot of stuff for them both to chew on, a lot of national agenda, so things that Canada's working on, things the U.S. is working on in the Americas, things the two could be working on together. But I don't don't think that the digital services tax issue has gone away. Um, I think it's very much uh, a challenge, an irritant in the relationship. The U.S. has made no secret of the fact that uh, they think that Canada's independent approach is going to create uh, problems for U.S. business, and they're willing to uh, act against uh, Canada in in trade challenges that could hurt Canada uh, in some very real sectors and very real parts of the economy. So they didn't talk about it, but it definitely didn't go away. So what do you see uh, as some of the biggest risks 
in the cross-border trade relationship if this tax does go ahead in January and the White House decides to retaliate in kind? Sure. Well, the U.S. is looking at at how this can be affecting um, their interests, their economy, their constituents. And so, you know, Congress is divided in so many areas. But on this issue, on Canada's stance on digital services tax, there actually is an alignment in Congress. The two major committees that determine U.S. trade policy in Congress and the Senate have both made very strong statements to say, Canada, if you do this, we are hitting back with, uh, with a trade challenge. And when these sort of trade um, disputes come up, they don't respond with something in the digital sector. They will respond in, against Canadian lumber, against Canadian aluminum, against Canadian maple syrup, things will, that will hit us hard. And the, I just don't see that the, the benefits um, outweigh the costs, not only in, in dollar terms, but in goodwill, as we're trying to move into a renegotiation of the, um, or a review of the USMCA or Canada-US-Mexico agreement. That's coming up over the next two years. Canada is in, um, is the recipient of some U.S. goodwill through the, uh, through the IRA. Um, uh, there are lots of uh, discretionary areas that the U.S. could say, you know what, Canada, we're going to wash our hands of this and, and not give you the sort of special arrangements that you've, been, that you've been used to. So I think this could be unnecessarily launching a period of trade friction between the United States and Canada at a time when we can least afford it. And it's interesting because we've had these wider talks today in Washington, the first summit meeting for the America's Partnership for Economic Prosperity, 12 countries in all from Canada and the U.S. all the way down to uh, Peru and Chile. So um, you are talking about the IRA and, and trade issues and uh, the growing protectionism that we've seen uh, inside the United States, uh, not just with the Biden administration. At the same time, uh, the White House is looking for uh, more economic integration uh, with Canada, with other countries throughout um, the Western Hemisphere. So uh, talk about how, how that's uh, perhaps in competition with each other and, and how that's playing out uh, in the United States yeah. right now. I think it's a real challenge for the Biden White House to both talk the talk and walk the walk. The talk is easy. The talk is about building relationships, building trade relationships with um, countries in Latin America in order to improve stability, improve their economic climate, and help to reduce the kind of uh, uh, humanitarian migration towards the United States that we've seen. So they're trying to control migrant flows by making conditions better at home. And they're willing to assist with that. Uh, and the areas that the U.S. can definitely assist, and Canada's a part of this through some multilateral organizations, are investment in infrastructure, investment in training, uh, real focus on the tech sector, for example, and uh, um, clean tech and uh, areas where where we all have a joint interest. But what I don't see is the ability of the United States to really expand its trade, to reduce tariffs, to open its doors for the sorts of exports that that uh, developing countries in Latin America have to offer. Um, the U.S. is really, you know, with the unions being very powerful, with Democrats being 
beholden to unions um, for their uh, for their position. They're just not going to open the doors to trade from uh, lower income economies that have lower wage rates. So while I hear them talking about uh, uh, microchips and infrastructure, that's great. But if you're Peru, you really want to sell garments and small machinery and foodstuffs. And I don't see that being a part of this conversation. So going at it in a purely trade perspective is is going to be really difficult. On the other hand, the size of the investments in infrastructure and training, nobody's going to turn their nose up on that. I just don't know if it's going to be as effective as it could be if you would also open the market and really look towards an integrated market in the Americas. Okay, Laura Dawson, Executive Director of the Future Borders Coalition. Thank you as always for your thoughts. You're very welcome. Canada is accusing the Chinese military of targeting a Canadian helicopter twice last weekend over international waters, a cyclone doing routine exercises over the South China Sea. The defence minister says the first passover by a fighter jet caused turbulence and that the second encounter included flares that pilots had to manoeuvre around. Bill Blair says Canada is relaying its concern through diplomatic channels. It is routine that these interceptions will take place, but our expectation is that they will take place in a way which is both professional and safe. And unfortunately, what we've seen in in the most recent incidents on two occasions, the actions of the People's Republic uh, fighter jet were were deemed to be significantly unsafe. And and we'll express our concerns to the People's Republic of China about that. And that is this edition of Primetime Politics. I'm Andrew Thompson in Ottawa. For all of us at CPAC, thanks for watching.